I love, I love summer. <laughs> Holy cow, it's snowing forever. Oh. Um, I was, uh, I love, my favorite thing in summer is mountain biking. I just love it. And, uh, and I, I've been, mount, in fact, I started mountain bike racing in college. And, um, and then I just, I stopped racing because races were on Sundays. I don't know when they are now, but back then all the races were on Sundays and I wanted to be a, be a, in the ministry. And so I had to choose. I could either go to church. I wasn't in the ministry yet, but I needed a new, if you're going to be a minister, you should probably go to church. <laughs> and so I had to choose if I'm going to do bike racing, which I was ranked in the state of Texas. I was pretty good. And if I was going to do bike racing or if I was going to do the, um, the church thing. So I quit racing and I went to church. And uh, it worked out well. Uh, but the, um, one day I was riding in uh, McKinney, Texas. It was probably February because it was like 80 degrees. Yeah. It was beautiful. And this new trail had been cut, and, um, and I went to go check it out. And so uh, loaded up my bike, went out to McKinney. We used to live in Anna. I know you don't know what any of this means, but anyway, little towns up north Dallas. Now they're Dallas, but anyway. Uh, and so I drove into McKinney and hopped off, hopped off my car and got on my bike, and there's the trail. see the trailhead, off I go. Great ride, wonderful ride. I'm almost done, about an hour and a half in, and I see another rider. I hadn't seen a rider the whole time. And this other rider says, you're going the wrong way. <laughs> Sorry, Charlie. <laughs> and I was like, you what? You know, it's like, I'm a minister, I'm a pastor at this point, so, you know, most of my cussing is Christian, but, um, and so I was just like, what? And that's it, he just rode by by, just mean, you're going the wrong way. And I was like, well, first, I didn't see signs that told me which way I had to go, and I didn't hit the guy, although I wanted to after that, and so, I mean, I didn't, I just like, there was plenty of space, and, you know, I didn't know what he's talking about, so, um, but apparently I was going the wrong way on this trail, which had no markings on it. It, just, it seemed like it was free. I could go however I want. I keep riding, and I'm almost, I'm almost done, and I get to a fork in the trail, and I stop because I'm like, I don't know which way to go, and I'm pretty deep in the woods. And, uh, and so another rider comes up, and he stops, and he says, hey, how you doing? I said, oh, I'm, I'm doing great. I mean, I'm out here riding my bike. It's a great day. It's February. There's people in Steamboat who are freezing right now. And uh, actually, I didn't know you existed. But anyway, uh, and so he said, uh, he said, um, you know, so you're having a good ride? He's like, oh, man, it's so good. And um, he's like, yeah, I love this trail. I was like, I do too. He's like, hey, you know what? This trail was cut to go the other direction. And so the reason you're lost right now is because you're, you're going the wrong way. And if you were going the other way, you wouldn't be stuck at this fork. And, and actually, you might enjoy the ride better. And I was like, well... <laughs> That's very nice of you. <laughs> Actually, somebody had just told me something similar on the way to see you. And so uh, he's like, but the trail goes that way. And so I was like, okay, cool. So I just went the way he came. And, you know, I met the first guy, met the first guy, and I thought, I'm going to ride this trail backwards till the day I die. <laughs> the next day I see you, I'm going to hit you. I mean, I was like, I was so triggered, you know. And then I meet the next guy, and both mountain bikers. And the next guy, though, he's like, I'm like, what a great guy. I'm going to be a trail evangelist. You know, I'm going to go around telling people the same thing. How's your ride? How you doing? Great. You know what? The trail's cut this way. I was just, it was the best news. I was just like, it's wonderful, right? It's a totally different experience. The way we hear rules, right? The way we hear rules changes everything, doesn't it? It does. 
In fact, when you're thinking about like um, parenting, right? If you're like uh, Angie and I have an approach to parenting, our, our, we're highly relational, low instructional. You're like, it t- we can tell. I know. But, you know, our, our kids may fail sometimes, but our goal is to be highly relational because we, when we tell them the rules, we want them to obey the rules, not because we told them the rules. We want them to obey the rules because they love their mommy and daddy, and they know their mommy and daddy love them, right? So we, we have a highly, we have what's called highly relational parenting. It's just a, whatever, okay? It's another topic, another day. I'm talking about parenting today. But, uh, you know, but how we hear those rules changes everything. We, we've realized that as parents, and so we've made those adjustments as parents. Um, our country, did you know our country started because we didn't like the way we were getting the rules, right? We had a king an ocean away who wanted our money, right? We had no relationship with the king. And so we said, I think we're going to have a revolution, right? And we had a re- our whole country started because we were getting rules without a relationship. And here's the, if you miss anything today, here's, here's the big catch. Here's the big takeaway. Rules without relationship always equals rebellion. Rules without relationship always equals rebellion. The day I was mountain biking and that guy told me to run the other way, ride the other way, I was like, I'm going to ride this way. Every single, I was like, rebellion, right? It was in my heart. I was so prideful and arrogant, and it was beautiful. And I needed Jesus that day. And so, but, but then the, the next guy I meet is so nice, so different. A relate, even a small relationship was formed. Just a small touch of kindness and relationship was formed. And everything changed. And the rules were all of a sudden, I was able to submit to the rules, right? We receive rules in all kinds of different ways. Um, we receive rules from a position of fear. In fact, um, sometimes our country runs on that. If you break the law today, you will go to jail, right? And you fear jail. You should fear jail, right? We, I hope you fear jail. I don't particularly want to go back, <laughs> but you might fear jail. So you fear jail, right? And so you don't break the law. That's that's. You fear the death penalty, so you don't break the law. So there's fear is one of the motivators. Uh, you fear your daddy, so you don't break the law, right? So you fear is a motivator. Another, fear, another motivator is dogma that's commonly used. Um, so a fear is uh, don't do it because I'll get you, um, and that's many people's view of religion or Christianity even. Another approach to the way we get people to follow rules is from dogma, and that is um, don't do it because I said so, right? That's just the way it is. You ever say that parents, you ever find yourself quoting your parents? <laughs> Why? Because I said so, right? Not your best moment, not mine either. It's dogma, right? That's not a good reason for rules, but sometimes kids, that's the way it is. So get over it, all right? So you can have dinner tonight. So, so there's dogma. And then the, the, final, the final way that we hear rules is um, lovingly or relationally. And that is don't do that. Why? Because I love you. Because when you do that, it's going to result in something that's going to be negative, And I don't want you to experience that negative. I'm trying to protect you from that, right? I'm trying to protect you. All of us would prefer to hear the rules lovingly, relationally. And what is probably the most famous passage of rules in all of the world? I'm not talking about just the Bible. I'm talking about everybody knows this. Everybody's heard of the Ten Commandments, right? And probably the most famous passage of rules ever written There is a relationship that's established on a mountaintop before the rules are ever given. And we always, because we are Americans and we are performance-based, we jump to the rules, right? We, there's, remember, remember we used to have Ten Commandments posted everywhere around our nation? Most have been knocked down. Nobody has relationship with God posted anywhere, but that's essential to understanding 
the Ten Commandments. So today we continue our mountain series, and we are in Exodus chapter 19, and we are looking at the Ten Commandments. In fact, we're getting to the Ten Commandments. We will look briefly at them um, because you can't talk about them and then not talk about them, um, and so I want to touch on them. But it, the story of the Ten Commandments, which is in Exodus 20, starts on a mountaintop in Exodus 19. And so hopefully you're there with me. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 2, it says this. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set, they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, the mountain being the mountain of God. The third new moon simply means, uh, and I love that that the way they phrase that, who the writer here, because we don't. It reminds me. This makes me think of somebody like counting the moons. Like when you're in slavery, I don't know if you count the moons, but it's kind of picture these guys are all kind of safe and they're along. They're out in the wilderness and they got all their fires because there's millions of them. So there's just little campfires everywhere, and they're looking at the moon and they go, "Oh, this is the third one. The third one since what? We the first night." We left. Egypt was a new moon. It was the first new moon. And then we had a second. And this is the third new moon. And here we are at the mountain of God. So it's been three months, three new moons. And that's all, that's, that's all that passage is trying to tell you. But it, to me, it reveals a certain amount of rest, um, a certain amount of we're not scared anymore. So what has happened so far? Well, Abraham receives a promise in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, that he's going to be uh, the beginning of a land. He's going to be the beginning of a seed, and he's going to, he's going to receive his seed and land are going to receive blessing. He, he becomes the nation of Israel. In fact, one of his great-grandkids, Jacob, his name is changed to Israel. Uh, Israel and his boys, Joseph being one of them, the most famous one, is moved, they move to Egypt because of a famine. They find a nice little subdivision outside of town where they can grow their family really large and nobody pays any attention. And the Egyptians do their thing and the Israelites do theirs. Next thing we know, the Israelites are about a million strong and uh, Pharaoh gets very nervous about this and enslaves them because this, this little subdivision has grown into another city of uh, foreigners. And so he makes them into slaves and they build what many people, many archaeologists have come to believe are the pyramids that we see today. After 400 years of this, the Bible says, God hears the cries of his people. Two things actually are happening. God hears the cries of his people and the sin of the Canaanites has reached a point where it's beyond a redemptive character, if you know what I mean. They're not going to turn from where their sin is. There's, there, it says, the Bible says, the sin of the Canaanites has met fruition. It's gotten as far as it can go. It is time for them to be judged. So that has come to fruition. God hears the cries of his people, and he's going to set them free. Last week we saw on this same mountain that we're going to look at today in, in Sinai that uh, he calls a 80-year-old man named Moses, who is a shepherd, who is also a former Egyptian, but also an Israelite because he was adopted. Uh, he calls him to set the people of Israel free through the burning bush. And then Exodus 3 through 19 are the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, a big celebration because all the Egyptians died, uh, manna, quail, water, and Moses reunited with his family. It all happens right there in Exodus 3 through 19. Boom, you're done. Happy? Isn't that great? Didn't have to read it all to you. Okay. Now they stand at them, they've escaped, they stand, they're standing or sitting or sleeping at the foot of the mountain of God. Verse 3. 
while Moses went up to God. So Moses had appeared there once before. He's going to show up again. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Two beautiful things happened in that little Hebrew phrase right there. Bore you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. When an eagle is learning to fly... I had to research this. When an eagle is learning to fly, a mom, the mother eagle, flies underneath it to help it learn how to fly. So the picture that's being painted here in the Hebrew is God, like a mother eagle, took out his people from safety and led them, allowing for them to kind of fly again with complete safety and care. It's wonderful. The next phrase and brought you to myself. Jesus actually says it in John 14, 3. He says this, And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, speaking about heaven. When he leaves, don't worry, I'm going to bring you to me. And the phrase there is the phrase that's commonly used by a father, a father to his child. If I could, if you would just bear with me, <laughs> it means this. Son, come see me. Enclosed, you'll find my credit card. Right? It's, <laughs> it's everything you need. You have no expense. Come. You come to me. Right? I've, I've taken care of everything you could possibly need. Right? Come see me. I need you here with me. And so God, that's what God said. I, I've brought you to myself like a father does his son who's far away. I've brought you to myself, and I cared for you along the way. I flew underneath you so that you would not fall. I completely cared for you. And here's what he's trying to show up, show Israel. Before he's given them a rule, before a single commandment, right? This is what he's saying. I have loved you like a mom and a dad, the fullest of my heart. And I've protected you and cared for you and provided for your every need on this journey. Before he's given a rule, God establishes relationship. He's not the first biker. You're going the wrong way. He's the second biker, but even more so. I love you. I have redeemed you from slavery. I have, brought you, I have heard your prayers. I have heard your cries. I am revealing myself to you. I am real. I'm guarding over you. I'm providing for you before you get a single command. So God establishes a relationship with his people first, and then he gives the command. The same, listen to me, like you're going to hear this over and over and over again for the next 30 minutes. The same is true with Christ. It grieves my heart. It just breaks me when somebody says, oh, I want to come to church, but I got to get my life together first. No. <laughs> if, we, if we'd said that, there'd be nobody here, right? I mean, all of us need to get our lives together, right? That is not the point of Christianity. The point of Christianity is to get to know the God who loves you, and then the law comes. Then the rules come, right? It doesn't start with the rules, it starts with a relationship. That's why you'll hear people commonly say, Christianity's not a religion, it's a relationship. It's fine, that's okay, you could say that. But it, it starts with a relationship. And then we do the rules because we know we're loved by a God who's given us these rules. And then we see in verse 5, the establishment of the old covenant. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice 
and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses has gone to God. He's on the mountain. God gives him these words and, and part, says, hey, I've taken care of you. I've guarded over you. I love you like a mom and a dad, the best mom and dad you could possibly have. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. I, um, I want to take a second now just to kind of pull away from the emotional you know, stuff and teach you a little bit. So God here establishes what's called the old covenant. Say old covenant. That's just to keep you awake. Okay, so the old covenant, all right. In this old covenant, here's what we see. Obey the law because I love you. The relationship's been established first. Now, obey the law, and when you obey the law that I'm about to give you, you will be my treasured possession. In other words, you will experience prosperity, okay? Old covenant, Israel's covenant, okay? Obey the law, you will experience prosperity, Part of that prosperity is found in verse 6. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean? A kingdom of priests would mean all of you, the whole kingdom, can experience me, can know me, can hear from me. All of you have access to me, right? You're, king, you're all priests. Kind of sound like some other famous religion, maybe tied to the same book, right? First Peter says this. You will be a kingdom of priests, right? Christians are a kingdom of priests, but he, God says it in the Old Covenant, you will be a kingdom of priests. If you obey the law, you will experience prosperity in the land that I'm going to give you, and you will all have access to me, and you'll be a holy nation, right? God's saying you're going to be America, right? Not what he's saying at all. That was, that was politically funny. Um, okay, he is saying you are going to be a moral, ethic light to the world. You're going to show the world what it means to follow the one true God. And there are people longing for it, and they're going to come to you. In fact, Isaiah calls Israel a light to the world, right? All of this stuff, and then there's sacrifices, there's more to it, but I'm just trying to give you a kind of a 10,000-foot view of this. All of this is tied to the Abrahamic promise. Remember I told you Genesis 12, verses 1 through 2 is the entire Old Testament, Abraham, to you I will give a seed, many people. To you I'll give blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'm going to give you a land, the promised land, okay? And by through all those three things, you're going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Not just your family, not just Israel. The entire world is going to be blessed by what I'm doing through you, Abraham. And then God later on establishes through the line of Abraham this old, this old what we call the old covenant. They're calling a covenant. This old covenant that says, here's the relationship, here's the rules, follow the rules, experience the blessing, be a kingdom of priests, be a holy nation. Why? Because I have a purpose for you, because you're going to be a blessing to the whole earth, and you can't be that blessing if you don't fulfill the old covenant. Does that make sense? Contrasting really quickly with the new covenant, say new covenant, covenant. just to keep you awake. Right, just to keep you away. The new covenant is this. It is for everyone. The old covenant was for Israel and those who wanted to become Israelis or become God-fearers. Uh, the new covenant is for everyone. You are loved. The whole, for God so loved the world. Right. This is just for Abraham's seed. The new covenant is for God so loved 
the world that he gave his only son. You have all been redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus. A follower of Jesus, the book of Ezekiel says this, the book of Isaiah says this, um, that in the, book, in the New Testament says this, that the followers of Jesus, there will come a day under the new covenant. Jeremiah says this. There's coming a day in the new covenant when the law of God will be written on their hearts. God will establish a new covenant with his people, and they won't need a written law. In fact, Paul calls the written law a tutor. You needed a tutor in the old days. Now you have the Spirit. You don't need that anymore. You're guided by the Holy Spirit. It's not a, you don't need a tutor or a guide anymore. And so you have the Holy Spirit. So followers have, of Jesus have the law written on their hearts. It brings you joy to follow him and conviction not to. Followers know God through the Holy Spirit. So therefore, you and I are kingdom of priests when we follow Jesus. This is the new covenant. Bringing to fruition the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. We are all blessed because of Abraham and the work that God did there. That's the new covenant. Do you see it? It all works together. There's no contrast. It's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same promises. They're just fulfilled in the church. You see that? You with me? Whew, that's my favorite part of the whole sermon. I love teaching you about that. Okay. In both covenants, God is relational. God is not just giving rules. He is not just some cosmic source of provision. He's not a deadbeat God who couldn't, start what he, who couldn't finish what he started. God is good. God is relational. God is present in both covenants. They are not different. You see, God is the same today, yesterday, and forever, always and forever. He's still the same. Nothing has changed. But we missed that. The rest of Exodus 19, we're going to skip. Lots of drama, great drama. There's lightning, there's thunder, there's fear, there's trembling, the presence of God hovering, there's smoke. It looks like a Van Halen concert, right? I mean, it's just lots of stuff happening, you know, and, you know, they're, and God's present and everybody's scared and God says, everybody come up and they're like, uh-uh, you, you go, Moses. And so they send up Moses and he goes up there and so there's all this great stuff. So Moses gets to the summit of what appears to be a very large mountain. We don't know exactly where this mountain is um, and if we did, we probably couldn't go there because it wouldn't be safe. Um, but God calls Moses to the top of this mountain, and he gives what's, the, in the Hebrew, they would understand it as the 10 words. It's words in the negative tense, just 10 words, easy to remember. But we have the 10 commandments. But the heart behind these commandments is they come from a God who guides his people. And if you read your Bible, all you see over and over and over again is grace, don't you? They, complete, they break these commandments. These people break these commandments over and over and over again, and God continues to forgive them. In fact, most of our heroes in Scripture are commandment breakers, right? Gideon, King David, Solomon. I mean, all these guys are commandment breakers, but God continues to forgive. Moses was a commandment breaker, all of them. God continues to protect them. He provides for them. He loves them. It's like God is saying this. This is what I put. It's my quote from God. This is Andrew, first Andrew Worley, second verse, chapter one. Uh, Listen, I made you. I made everything, and you matter to me. I know how this machine is rigged. I designed it. If you follow these commandments, you will enjoy a good life with me. If not, you will miss out on the treasured purposes I have for you as my treasured people. That's the tone of these commandments, not Angry, better do good, or I'm going to get you better, you know, better watch out, better not cry, I'm telling you why big bad God is coming to town, right? It's not that, right? It is, I love you, I have a purpose for you, I made all of this, I know how it's rigged, I know how you're rigged, so trust me and let me teach you 
these commandments, right? So the Ten Commandments are not from a judgmental God. They are, they are ten ways to have a good life and to realize all that God has planned for you. In the same way I tell my kids not to touch something because it's hot, in the same way I tell my kids not to play in the street because you might get hit by a car, in the same way I tell my kids don't pet a dog when it's eating, <laughs> he will bite your hand. God has the same tone. Don't, this, this thing is rigged. It's fallen. Trust me, do it this way in good times and bad. When circumstances are up and circumstances are down, whatever, keep trusting the commands. Do it this way and you will see the purposes I have for you. Exodus 20 then has the first version of the Ten Commandments. Can we talk about them? We're not, I could do a whole series on the Ten Commandments. I'm going to try and do it shorter than that. All right. The very beginning, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God. Why does he say that? Relationship. He doesn't say a God, the only God, true God, your God. Relationship. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt? That's not just saying who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I heard your prayers. I heard your cries. I protected you. I drew you out. Before, again, he's just like, just in case you missed it, Moses, and back in chapter 19, I want to make sure you understand it again. There's a relationship here that these commandments come from a loving God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. In a world of gods, remember, there is only one God. That's what he's saying. Other gods are going to let you down. Other gods are going to deceive you. They promise things they can't deliver. They are made with man's hands. They are jokes, right? Um. They are made out of the imagination of men. Don't go after them. Don't go after them. They will let you down. God is trying to protect you from foolishness of other gods. Very simple. Have no other gods before him. We're moving fast. Number two. Verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those, of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The second one, don't make an idol in a world full of idols. Keep your eyes on God. Don't get caught up in that. Don't, don't create idols for yourself. We create idols out of the things we think will deliver us. The very first example of this is the, peop, is the Israelites, because Moses is gone for a long time up on the mountain. They're like, he's forgotten about us. God must not be real. Everybody bring me your gold. Aaron does this. Everybody bring me your gold. Let's melt it down and make a cow. Cows are delicious. Not good gods, right? All the vegans are offended. That's the first thing. And then we just can, whatever we think is going to deliver us, we idolize. So, today we are much more dignified, though. We don't, we don't melt our gold. Today we, we make idols out of our job. We make idols out of our recreation. We make idols out of our health. We make idols out of our food. We make idols out of our um, marijuana. We make idols out of our alcohol. We make idols out of our sexuality. We make idols out of all the things that we think are going to deliver us from the fears, hurts, and pains of this world. And God is saying, there is nothing else that delivers you. All those idols will fall short. 
I'm trying to spare you the pain of coming to the end of that road, finding yourself slobbering in a gutter without the family that loved you, without the people around you who loved you, without all the good things because you sold yourself out to the idol of alcoholism or marijuana or pornography or whatever it is, thinking that those little idols would set you free, and they don't. They just enslave you more. God is trying to protect you. He knows that this is rigged. He knows what your heart will do. He says, don't do that. Verse 5 is so important. I am the Lord your God and jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. It's from this verse many people say that we have what's called generational curses. That is not what is happening. The word here is visit. God, God is saying, I don't have to curse you. I will just see it. You will inherently pass down your alcoholism to the next generation. You will pass down your idols to the next generation, and I will just watch it happen. And the only way then we are redeemed from these idols is through Christ. You're not stuck in it. For all of us who have maybe parents or grandparents who were alcoholics or did other, had other vices, we know that we can be free by the work and power of Jesus, right? We've all, not we all, I want to speak for all of you, but some of us have experienced the freedom that comes from that. But if there's no intervention, if there is no Christ, you will pass it down. And it's not a curse. It's just how the system is set up. Children look up to parents. Parents raise children, even bad ones. Right? It just happens. And God's like, I'm just trying to spare you from that. I'm just trying to spare you from that. Please don't create other idols. Don't go that direction. It's the wrong way. You'll enjoy it way better going this way. Because he's the only one who's going to free you from whatever it is or give you the salvation you think you need. Verse 7. You shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. God's name is powerful. Don't misuse it, dummy. (laughs) Don't throw God's name around. Now, The word name is reputation. It means reputation. It's not just his name, not just God. It's his reputation. You are going to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. When you speak, people are going to look at you and think you're speaking for God. So don't say God does something when he doesn't do it. Send hurricanes to the East Coast, for example. Right? Oh, causing earthquakes in California. Right? There's some good godly people in California. Like, Five of them. I've, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> and the two of them are here, right? So, no. <laughs> no. We don't say God's cursing those people. God's doing this. God, we don't do that. You're, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. The only thing you can say that God's doing is what's written down in Scripture. Otherwise, you're taking the Lord's name in vain. Well, does that mean I can't say GD? You know what GD means, right? Do I need to say that out? I can't say it out because that's a sin. It is still a sin, because I'm even going to say the second part of the word just so you understand it. You're saying that God damns something. Won't you say those words? God damns something when he doesn't. He's not mad at your hammer or the wall or your boss or the traffic, right? You, so you are taking him his name in vain. You just sound dumber. So God says, don't be dumb. That's what he's saying. I'm just trying to protect you from being stupid, right? Don't say these words. 
Dad's off. He's triggered, right? <laughs> don't say these words. You don't take the Lord's name in vain because you represent God. Does that make sense? But God says, you need to represent me accurately, so don't misuse my name. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But in the seventh day, that says do all your work, by the way. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You and your son and your daughter and your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or your sojourner who is with you in your gates, visitors. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. Surely you can get all your work done. The sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The next commandment is to rest. You are not, listen, my friends, you are not made to work all the time. Mm. Let's just breathe that. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. You need, listen, you need rest. You absolutely need rest. Um, when you work all the time, seven days a week, Right? 40 hours a day, whatever, 60 hours a day. <laughs> like, Andrew, this is steamboat. <laughs> That's how much we ski, right? You know. No, when you work all the time and fail to rest, you are pretty much saying, I am God. I have to provide for myself. I have to take care of these needs. I am the God here. And nothing says... I am not a God better than saying, I'm going to take a day off. Isn't that great? That's what God's telling us to do. I, he's like, I rigged you. I designed you. I made you. I created you. I know every single vessel that runs through your body. You are not made to run at 100 miles per hour all the time. You need to rest. Why? Because you're not a God. You're made in his image, but you're not a God. So let God be God and take a day off. Would you do? Yeah, I'm going to take a day off one of these days too. God says do it weekly. You need to have in your rhythm a day where you don't answer your phone, where you trust God to make the profit, where you trust God to make the sale, and you commit that day to God. You say, God, you are God over my career. You are God over my finances. You are God over my prosperity. You are God over all this, so I'm going to rest. My favorite food chain in the entire world does this. Chick-fil-A, right? Thank you. Applause. Chick-fil-A gets applause. That's hilarious. They are more profitable than McDonald's, and they miss a day. Now, it's important here that you do read this. It says, and do all your work. So you've got to work hard those six days or five days or four days that you work. You've got to work really, really hard those days. I would show you another picture of a of um, Fiddle on the Roof, but I'm sure you've all seen it by now. Um, no, you haven't, but there's this great scene where they're just working their tails off to get ready for the Sabbath. It's like the very, at the very, when the sun hits the horizon, it starts to go all the way down. They're doing every single last thing they can possibly do to get ready for the Sabbath because they take their Sabbath very seriously. You cannot take Sabbath seriously if you didn't take your work seriously too. So you have to work hard, right? And then you rest just as hard. And that one day, making God, God. So the first, are, um, the first five are upwards, and then we start to get sideways on these commandments, on how we relate to each other. Verse 12, honor, I love this one, <laughs> honor your father and your mother, 
that the days may be long in the land that the Lord your God gives you. In fact, the New Testament says that this is a promise even today. You listening? Here we go. <laughs> they said, are we in the sermon today? It's like, I don't know. You are now. First commandment given with a promise. Do this, you'll be blessed. Do this, and there will be prosperity. People are always looking for promises in Scripture. What promises can I take? Honor, try this one. Honor your parents. Put that on a T-shirt. Right? I honor my parents. Even when you disagree with them, even when I disagree with them. Which happens. Happens to all of us. Right? Um, even when they're crazy, especially when they're crazy. <laughs> That's when they need me the most. Right? I honor my parents. How do you honor them? I honor them with my thoughts. I honor them with my prayers. I honor them with my words. I honor them with the things I say to, about them behind their backs to my spouse. Y'all don't do that, right? I honor them. We could talk about them, but I honor them in doing so. Constantly honoring them. Why? Because God says there's a promise at the end of that one. That there's a good life. How would that work? You know what it, you know what it teaches you? Respect. Even people you don't like sometimes. When you learn to respect authority and respect people you disagree with, this is your parents, right? You guys are looking at me like you don't have parents. Okay, I feel like I'm the only one with parents in here. You guys all come from God or something? The angels? What am I doing? When you talk to people, when you have to respect people you don't agree with sometimes, does that happen to you? This is just me? Okay. When you have to talk to people, you have to respect people that, um, that maybe aren't the best sometimes. When you have to respect these people and you honor them all the time, it teaches you to respect and their authority figures teach you to do that overall. You know, what, you know what the problem is in our country right now? It's a complete lack of respect for people we disagree with. And you guys are, I love your amen section right there. It's so great. <laughs> we, when we, dis, we can't disagree in peace anymore. We're just seeing a complete erosion of a lack of respect. I don't respect you because you're a different political party. I don't respect you because you're a different religion. I don't respect you because you do things this way. Man, we, what makes great societies is universal respect for people, even when you disagree with them, and especially for authority. You lose that, you lose the country. I'm running for office. <laughs> it's my, my slogan campaign, honor your father and mother. That's it right there. I'm running on that. Okay. Verse 13, don't kill, don't murder is what it says. You shall not murder. Murder is the planning, plotting, and taking of another person's life. It's not the same thing as war. It is conniving. It is wicked. It is completely different than war. It is also different than self-defense. You break into my home tonight and you try to hurt my family, you will die by one of my mini guns because I'm from Texas. <laughs> All right. Don't, but don't plan it, right? Don't plan the murdering because that's a sin. And it's just generally not nice. Right? There's like, there need to be a sin to not do it. You just shouldn't do it. All right. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Do not sleep with a man or woman you are not married to. Sexuality is a gift from God. It is a picture of marital oneness. It's meant to be experienced and practiced and enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. You take it out of that, and it becomes a raging wildfire without the protection of a fireplace or anything else to take care of it, and it just consumes. And God knows you share that part of your heart because he's tied it 
He's tied sexuality to your soul, your heart, your emotions, your physical, your body. He's tied it all together so that when you enjoyed it in marriage, it would be binding. It would be powerful. And you take it and you throw it around like it's, like it's a toy. It's like you're going to get burned. It's going to consume you. It's going to hurt you. And God, as a caring father, says, I want to protect you from that. Save it. Leave it for marriage and keep it in the marriage. Don't let it be a raging fire because it will burn you down. Thank you. Don't steal. Verse 15, you shall not steal. <laughs> it's, not, it's not yours. Don't take it. Trust God to give you what you need. Right? You ever see, uh, never mind. I got to get through this. Don't lie. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie about your neighbor, which means anyone, right? Uh, a great society demands that we can trust one another. I, it's one of the things I love about Steamboat, right? Anybody have their house locked up today? Okay, nobody. I mean, I love Steamboat. But not, I'm not going to confess that, but none of you have your house locked up, right? I know you don't, right? Me either. It's like fun ever, right? Um, yeah, so it's like, it's a great decide. It's what we love about this place. It's so safe. You can't do that everywhere. In fact, we were at Copper Mountain yesterday, and Austin said, hey, Dad, lock the doors. We're not in Steamboat. <laughs> at the car, I'm like, well, it's still Copper. Okay, yeah, hold on. Uh, it's cold here. It's colder than a legalist heart in Copper Mountain. Okay, that was funny. You missed it, but it was hilarious. All right, um, don't steal from each other. Trust God to take care of you. Finally, don't covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant, his ox, which is like, like his tractor. He's got a John Deere, you know, I don't. Or his donkey, he's got a Lamborghini or a Tesla, I got an old Jeep, you know. Or anything, thank you, or anything that is your neighbor's. Don't covet those things. Listen, this is, I love this commandment. I hate it, but I love it. God is... This is so important. you got to get this one. You, you look at the covet one, you're like, oh, finally we're done. No, no, no. This is, a, this is real important because we struggle with this. We all do. God has given your neighbor, whoever he or she may be, all that they have by his grace, his Tesla, her Lamborghini, whatever, their skis. I don't know. I don't even know, I don't even know skis well enough to covet after them. <laughs> you know? But he's given those things to them by his grace. And he has given you what you have by grace because you still have something more than somebody else, right? And he's done that for a specific purpose that only you can fulfill. So your drive to work, your stopping at the coffee shop, your, the reason you, start, you have to shop at City Market and not Whole Paycheck, the reason you, there's not one here, but you know, there's, the reasons you live and do and have the rhythms that you have are based on the things that God has given you by his grace. And he has a purpose for you in those spaces that you are meant to fulfill in your job, in your skills, in your abilities. And your neighbor has specific abilities and access to things that you don't have access to. And he has a purpose for them in that place doing those things. And if you want to be your neighbor, then he's got two people over there. He doesn't need two people over there. He needs one here and one over there. So stop trying to be the neighbor because the neighbor's got their job and God, and they're, it's between them and God whether or not they fulfill it, right? You've got yours and you won't realize it if you're constantly looking to the neighbor 
Realize what God has placed you and say, okay, God, you've given me a purpose in this place. I'm going to do the thing you've asked me to do, even if I'm broke, because I know with you I'm rich. It doesn't matter about all these material things I'm seeking after. The family you've given me, the wife you've given me, the husband you've given me, the children you've given me, all these things have happened for a reason. I trust you in that. I'm going to fulfill your purposes in this for your glory. I'm not going to covet. You see that? And God's like, I got a plan for you. And if you're living the way Billy Bob Job, I can't think of a bad name, Zachariah is living or whatever. If you're living the way that guy's living, you're not going to see what I have planned for you. And what I have planned for you, you're going to love. And you're going to totally miss it because you're looking up the street the whole time. Stop. Rest in what God has given you. Stop looking at what others have and love what God has given you and fulfill it. Anybody break any of these commandments? Already today? Yeah, I did. Already. Oh, isn't it great? God says uh, in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Exodus, what's established is to make a covenant. Covenant is the word cut. It's the Hebrew word for cut. And I've told you this before. I'm going to tell you again. To fulfill a covenant, two men form on each side of animals, and you cut the animals in half. It's pretty gross. And I'm going to make a covenant with Brett, and he's going to sell me some land somewhere in Florida, right? And so we're going to, we're going to make a covenant, and so we're going to place a deer, an elk, a bird, you know, different animals, and we're going to cut these animals in half, and we're going to walk and meet each other in the middle, and we're going to shake hands, spit on it, whatever, and say, this is what happens to us if we don't fulfill our covenant. We die. We're going to fulfill our covenant, right? That's, that's how you make a covenant. When the first covenant is established with Abraham, this happens. Abraham cuts all the animals, but the uniqueness is when you read it in the book of Genesis, God travels through the animals. He says, if you break this covenant, I will die. And then in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, he says, okay, I've given you the commandments. You're going to fail. So every year I need you to remember the covenant, which requires death. So you need to sacrifice a lamb every year, a goat every year, Pigeons, birds, every year. You're going to have to remember these covenants. This is a covenant that requires death, right? So every year, for hundreds of years, Israel had been sacrificing animals to remind themselves that what they have with God is a covenant, and it fulfilling it, or breaking it, excuse me, requires death. Until one day, a man born of a virgin, sent by God, the Son of God, comes walks the earth for 33 years, explains the scriptures in a way that Israel had never understood them and says, in me, in my blood, is a new covenant. And no longer do you have to sacrifice the goats or the lambs. I have fulfilled all the covenants. Everything is fulfilled in me. And now you enjoy the grace of God. When you break these commandments, you experience the forgiveness and grace of God through the new covenant blood of Jesus. You see that? All of this book is meant for a purpose. So let's take communion together.